Welcome to Mind the Skills Gap, where we explore the barriers to skills transfer and how you can overcome them, flavoured with a sprinkle of neuroscience. In this episode, I asked Paul Matthews for examples of how he's bridged the knowing to doing gap. He knew he needed to change his diet and he knew how to do it, but he wasn't doing it. Sound familiar? But his answer surprised me. He used his own data to help him see his progress. Listen in to find out how. I'm Stella Collins, an evangelist for the neuroscience of learning and co-founder and chief learning officer at Stella Labs. Watch out Skills Gap, we're coming for you. Hello, and welcome back to the Mind the Skills Cap podcast. I'm Stella Collins, and I am delighted to be here today with Paul Matthews, CEO at People Alchemy. I was amazed, Paul, to find out that you have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro twice, crossed the Sahara three times, and the Himalayas eight times. Sadly, today, we haven't got time to explore that. But I also know that you have written three books on L&D, one of which I contributed to, which I'm very proud of, and that you have a very specialist learning software company. And I think our joint passions are around practical transfer of learning into the workplace, making sure people can do the jobs they need to do. So we've known each other a long time. I think we met originally at a uh, a conference and I was very inspired by the idea that you had this really useful metaphor about a learning environment and how it was a bit like a garden. So perhaps you can just very quickly, is that still a kind of a metaphor for you? It's still very much valid, I think. I mean, the term I used was a learnscape and it, it wasn't a term I invented. It's been around for a while and in fact, it came out of the education sector where they would have a learnscape at the back of the school where kids would go practice gardening or have worm farms or do whatever. But I, I, it, the other name that people use for that is a learning ecosystem. So that's also been bandied about as just the kind of environment that surrounds people in an organisation. But if you imagine an empty section, you know, plants are going to grow on it. You can't stop them. That's just how nature works. But where you can tend those plants and you can encourage them to grow in certain positions or in a certain way, or you can just let them grow in any old way wildly. Um, so if you think of that growth as learning, that's where the crossover is. And and always remember that for an individual plant as a gardener, you can't control exactly which plant will hold how many flowers or how many apples and, and, and when those apples are going to be ready to eat. But what you can do is water and fertilise and tend them in a way that generally encourages them to grow in the direction and and much more in an organised fashion than if you'd left them to their own devices. So that's So I sort of see the gardener a bit like the learning and development professional where they've got considerable influence but not ultimate detailed control. So that, that's kind of where the, the metaphor is. And you need to understand how that growth happens, in other words, how learning happens and, and how to encourage it, you know, which plants might thrive in the sun, which in the shade and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and learning, like growing, uh, is absolutely natural. We can't stop it either. But what we can do is guide it. So that, that was... And, and that was all in the sort of the thinking around when I did my book on informal learning, and that came out of that book, really, and the research I did for that is a, a way to think of it. Still totally valid, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I thought it was a lovely metaphor, and I, I still, you know, think of it as, as 
something that's valid for me too. So, um, so at Stella Labs, we're really focused on on getting people from from knowing to doing. So they're really applying what they learn, whether it's formally or informally, but they're taking that knowledge, they're taking those uh, experiences, and they're actually turning them into learning things that work. So I guess it is about doing that gardening with them, getting them to grow in the right direction, supporting them, um, feeding them, watering them. But, you know, it seems that this is quite rare. And we know from, <laughs> from research that, you know, only about 15% of people apply what they're learning in work. Um, so we really need to make sure that more people are doing this learning transfer. They actually are, you know, taking what they know and actually doing something useful with it. So what is the case, Paul? What is the case for learning transfer? I think you're being generous when you say 50%, to be perfectly 15, honest. 15, I said, oh, one 15. five. 15, sorry, I thought it was 15. I thought, oh, wow, that's better than I've ever heard. No, one yeah. five. <laughs> yeah, one five. It's, um, it is down there, and that's kind of scary. And, and, and my background's engineering, and I've always said if I had a failure rate like that as an engineer, I'd be killing my customers with the machinery <laughs> I designed. So not really very good, and yet somehow we put up with it in L&D. So... But the case for learning transfer is very simple. If you bundle a load of money and resources into doing some kind of learning initiative, whatever that is, a training course, e-learning or whatever, and there's no transfer. In other words, there's no operational change afterwards because people don't really pick up the ball of that learning and run with it. Um, then it's just money that's completely wasted. And we, we spent huge amounts of time and effort uh, in manufacturing, for example, solving the problem of excess scrap material and yet in learning, we do almost nothing about scrap training, but it's part of our process, but produces nothing useful for us. So I don't know, how come we're so accustomed to just letting that be as it is? And, and we don't even look back on training money that was wasted and regret doing it. We just, it, it's kind of, it is really, and yet if we'd spent our personal money on a goods or, or a product or a service that didn't work, we'd, we'd regret that spend. Uh, it's, it's just, I just don't get it. It's really weird. I, I think um, it's partly because it's something you just said earlier is, you know, that we don't ne not necessarily sure what learning is. We're not defining learning. And I think a lot of people defining learning as, you know, the content piece that they have mm. knowledge. And I hear people all the time talk about learning and they're not talking about learning. They're talking about people have access to content. People might even consume content, but they're not doing anything with it. So I think there's a, a challenge of the definition of learning. And then we're not measuring the impact in the workplace. What we're tending to measure is, you know, did we have enough people attend the course? Did we have people complete the e-learning? We're not measuring the right things either, I think. Mm, mm. No, very much so. It's, yeah. And it's back to that gardening thing as well. If you fertilise a plant, a plant once, that's like giving it a load of content. But actually, it's you've got to do it a few times. That plant, you know, it's going to use that and then stop. You know, it, it's there's a need. The gardener must keep doing stuff. Yeah, you yeah. If you, don't, if you fertilize it, it but don't water it, then well, it's yeah, it's all pointless. about. So uh, you've got to keep thinking that it's a, a process rather than an event. And I think yeah. that's where a lot of people get tangled up is they get to the point where they think learning is an event, but of course it's not. And if you look at your own personal experience, you, you soon realize that. But strangely, people don't join those dots together, and I've still never really understood why. I think it's really interesting that people join the dots together for sports, for music. For very yes. obviously physical skills, they kind of recognise that, you know, you cannot learn to play a violin. My husband got a violin for Christmas last year. He definitely still can't play the violin, not that you want to hear him. And I think, you know, we recognise that for those things, we need time, we need effort, we need lots of practice. 
But somehow when it comes to the things we learn at work, whether it's compliance training, which should all be about behavioral stuff in my view, um, not just knowledge and information, whether it's, you know, cognitive skills we're learning, whether it's, you know, work-based skills we're learning, technical skills, we don't seem to recognize that it needs to take time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think L&D understand this? Because my, my next question was going to be, you know, how does L&D make the case to, to the CEO, the CEO to say, you know, we need to spend not necessarily more money, but we need to spend the time taking people, you know, through a process. How, how can they make that case to particularly COOs, because they're always saying, but people are so busy, we're so operational, we have no time to do training, mm, well, but we still want people to be upskilled. I think it's that chicken and egg situation a little bit. It's, you know, if, if um, oh, by the way, I heard the solution to that problem is a chicken is just an egg's way of reproducing. But anyway, it's <laughs> problem solved. But I, I would ask those, the C-suite people, a very simple question. If this training course or learning initiative that we are considering is 100% successful, how would you know? And listen for their answer. Ask them, what would you see that's different? What would you hear that's different? Or what would you notice that's different? You know, what are your expectations of the return that you will get on this investment that we're considering? Um, and, and they will start talking about what they want to see out there. And that is the set of criteria they are going to use to measure whether that training was successful. Ultimately, they don't really care how many bums are on how many seats and for how long and that kind of thing. Um, they don't even care really much about the curriculum. They just want to see those people out there doing what they need them to do to execute the organizational strategy. So ask them, what would you notice if this course we're considering is 100% successful? And then actually ask them, how would they know if it was only 50% successful? That's an interesting one. And that really makes them stop and think about just, well, if we don't get everything we want, what would be a halfway house? And would that be acceptable? And then actually ask them, well, okay, that training initiative we did last year, you know the one, you remember the one. What percentage successful do you think that was now that we've got a little bit of time after it to consider that in hindsight? And what you're really trying to do is connect some dots here between figuring out how they personally measure what's out there. What are their personal measurement criteria for success or failure? Because most metrics that L&D will deliver to them don't really matter to them. And that's yeah. the problem. So you need to, when you say, how do you talk to the C-suite? You need to talk to them in the language that they understand and actually figure out what metrics they are using at their gut or intuitive level to figure out whether a program was successful or not. And then you have to hook into those measures because that's what they're still going to use no matter what data you might give them. That's really um, interesting. And I think that also comes down to the fact that you then need to explain to them that, well, the reason that program, and, and this is about being brave in L&D, the reason that program didn't work last year was maybe because we did just focus on sharing knowledge with people. We didn't actually look at what's the transfer, what do we need to do to make sure that is transferred into the workplace? And that's quite a brave thing to admit that you didn't do it right last year. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of the problem. That's why that elephant in the room is actually rather something that a lot of people don't want to bring into focus. But you can take it beyond that initial thing and, and probably not talk about learning transfer just yet in that conversation is, is then you need to remind them that, you know, the way that bottom line gets impacted, which is, which is what you said in your question, is that people will need to execute that organisational strategy effectively. Um, they'll need to operate in specific ways 
and they'll need to behave in certain ways. I mean, that's obviously assuming the strategy itself is effective, but that's their problem, not yours. Um, and then what you've got is a way to measure the success of the program based on what they see in terms of behaviour, what they see in terms of their first order results of that behaviour um, occurring, such as you know some figures on a spreadsheet or something. So, so what you need to do is start agreeing with the C-suite what set of behaviours they need to see occurring in the workforce that will result in effective strategy execution. And what you'll do is say, right, if we get those behaviours, are you happy that you will get the strategy execution that you want? And you need them to sign off on that. And, and basically what you're doing is you're saying you want these behaviours and you think those behaviours with your experience, you, that's the, it's your choice, your decision, you want that set of behaviours and you think that will be what's required to get the bottom results, bottom line results you're after. So what you really get them to do is sign off on a set of behaviours. And they need to be able to tell you what those behaviours are. Too often they don't and they can't, and so you need to coach them through that. But until they have kind of said, yes, this is the set of behaviours you want, then you can say, how do we underpin those behaviours? What skills do we need? And, oh, by the way, we might need a bit of knowledge in order to be able to practise those skills. And then that starts you. So you start with the end in mind and work backwards. But that's kind of really where you have to go is get that initial behavioural needs analysis yeah. sorted out and say, and then, of course, you that brings up the question, okay, there's a set of behaviours that we have agreed. Now, how do we deliver those behaviours? And that takes you down a really good road to design a program, which is a very different road to the one that you would travel if you are starting out with the question, how do I deliver this curriculum? Yeah. Oh, how do we, people get this information and knowledge? I think yeah. the other thing that's really interesting in terms of the conversation with, you know, the C-suite senior people in the business there is helping them recognise how the the environment that people go back into after training is so important. You know, that support from managers, that support from, I mean, I always think about it, you know, you, you've just been on a course, I don't know, it could be for anything, time management. Um, it could be anything. And then you go down the corridor and there are signs and notices that are actually in complete contradiction to everything you've just mm -hmm. learned on the training programme. Um, and I think, you know, people often don't think about those the environment people go back into and is that supporting this new skill this new technique that they might be about to use i, I think i mean it's culture is the biggest you know enemy to to learning transfer is just how do we do things around here mm -hmm. and it can be worse than that i've come across people who say i went back from my training course and my manager said oh i did that course two years ago it's a waste of time you can forget <laughs> about that and you know let's get on with what we do here um, so in one sentence your two-day training is completely nullified. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that happens. You know, I've heard it more than once. I had a classic example myself when I was in programming and um, in the IT department, and I went on an Oracle database course. Before I went, nobody talked to me about why I was going. They just said, do the Oracle database course. It was a two-week program with Oracle, you know, extremely expensive. I came back. I had no opportunity to implement what I learned. The course itself wasn't great either. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have probably said the name, but anyway, I had no opportunity to implement it. Nobody ever said, was that a valuable course? You know, did, did, did you learn something from it? Are you doing something with it? Do I know anything about Oracle databases now? Absolutely nothing. 
It was just like dropped in at the, a sort of thing that somebody thought was a good idea. I hope the blueberry cheesecake at lunch was nice at least. <laughs> Can't remember that, but uh, <laughs> that is usually the things people remember, isn't it? Please excuse this interruption. At Stella Labs, we help you build business critical skills, not just knowledge. Add the missing pieces to your learning journeys to take people from knowing to doing. Want to know how? Visit stellalabs.eu to learn more. Now, back to the episode. What about, so we've got, you know, yes, we need to talk the language of the C-suite. We need to find out what the problem they're trying to solve is. What about employees who, you know, they don't really care about, they don't care about learning. What they want to do is get on with their job, build their careers, um, you know, just come into work and go home again, whatever it might be. What about them? What can we do with them? Well, number one, don't say you're going to deliver them some learning. I mean, that's a horrible phrase anyway, but um, it's because they don't want learning, as you quite rightly point out. What they want to do is have an easier life. They want to get home on time. They want to do things that are meaningful um, and that give them a sense of reward and satisfaction about what they're doing. I'm sure there's a lot of other things as well, but, you know, we know that. And, and they will – one of the things here that matters, quite frankly, is the leadership that they are subjected to, and I use that word advisedly, because if the leader is there saying, let's go that direction, guys, this is wonderful, here's the vision, and they articulate it well, and and and, and it's such a, uh, a fired-up thing, and everybody says, yeah, I want that, yeah, I, 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 yeah I'll come on, I'll, I'll climb on that train, I'll travel with you. And then they're going to say, well, how, do, how can I help? What, what do I need to – to, to find out about to, to to you know support this this is good I like this I want to contribute I want this is meaningful to me um, and and then they will they will go learn what they need to learn to travel on that train but of course if the leader is standing there sort of saying yeah well and, and not really leading everybody says well I'm okay where I am I've got no incentive to move or change or do anything so well, the, certainly the not within this environment. Or maybe I'll yeah. move to somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So so leadership has a massive impact. And and then the other big one, of course, is culture. Is what does the culture teach people about training and learning in that particular organization? And and you know, you sort of mentioned that they can go back. I mean, quite frankly, culture can untrain people faster than you can train them. Indeed. And 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 that's a real problem if the culture is inimical to that training that you're delivering. So it, it's, it's that old quote, you know, cultural strategy for breakfast. It'll eat your training for breakfast as well. Yeah. So culture is the soup that we're swimming in. So we've got to make sure that's a friendly soup. <laughs> <laughs> I think people really forget that, you know, we, we like to think we can control our own behaviours, but actually our behaviours are hugely affected by the context and the environment in which we find ourselves. I mean, there's just, you know, tons and tons of research that shows that, we, we're sort of in charge of our own behaviours, but we are hugely influenced by by where we, who we're mixing with, what the culture is around us. And I think that's something that people forget to to embrace in terms of thinking about helping people transfer learning into the workplace, that we need to really think what what is that culture. So mm-hmm. completely agree with you there. So we've kind of talked a little bit about the the c-suite we've talked a little bit about the people who are you know who are doing the job and and hopefully are inspired to learn and of course you know if you've got learners who or people who are learning for themselves that's enormously valuable in the first place but what are some of the barriers in your view what are some of the barriers to actually making sure learning transfer happens so we've talked a bit about maybe lack of engagement lack of leadership what other things are the barriers to to helping people actually do the doing 
I think there's two steps to that. And, and the biggest first barrier is the reluctance of people to even talk about learning transfer in an organization. It's that elephant in the room that they would really rather studiously ignore because it's a rather inconvenient elephant. So bringing that elephant in the focus. Paul? It's inconvenient because it's something that you mentioned it before. It's difficult to admit that we've done it very badly in the past and actually we've been pretty stupid. Um, it's also an awkward elephant because not a single a single person doesn't own it. In terms of learning transfer, you'll always find there will need to be a collaborative approach to doing that. You've you've mentioned already things like your management and the culture and the context, but other people that are involved. So there's a whole lot of different inputs that are required for learning transfer to happen effectively. So even getting that initial conversation going is difficult. I just put an ebook out. Originally, it's on my website for free if anybody wants it on 13 barriers and uh, up to even getting to the point where you can start implementing learning transfer. And then once you've got to that point of saying, right, we need to do this, it's important. And it's a pretty obvious discussion to get to that point. Then you can say, okay, now how do we do it? And, and the way that I, the work I lean on there is Dr. Ina Weinberg-Heidel's work. Uh, she's based in Austria and wrote a book on, on 12 effective levers of learning transfer after doing her PhD research. Um, very well researched, hugely informative book. I recommend I'm it to anybody. Also a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, and I've been sort of working you know, in, you know, on this and talking about this for, for years. And we've even presented at conferences together on it. But she, too, identifies culture as one of those 12 levers as kind of, again, that kind of environment, the total context. So uh, we can go through all the 12 levers here. I th it's a really useful thing. Um, my book on learning transfer has a table printed in there with her permission and actually an ebook on my website. Again, another ebook I did is for free, and that has that table in there of a summation or a summary of those 12 levers. So I'd absolutely get a hold of that to have a look at, and if those levers aren't pulled, then those are the barriers. And, and there are things like relevance. If something's not relevant to a learner, why would they even bother with it? So how do you end up pulling that lever? So what you've got to do is, um, is sit down with the various players in the game, the various stakeholders, and say, right, we've got this list of 12 levers to pull. Who's going to pull which levers and how? Um, before we even start the program, you have to think who's going to pull which of those levers and how we're going to pull them. Because if you don't do something with all of them, chances are you're going to not get learning transfer. And 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 the L&D professional can only pull some of them, not all of them. And and that's one of the problems with learning transfer is there's often no single point, or never that I've seen, a single point of ac accountability for learning transfer occurring. So it kind of slips through the cracks because no one's held accountable for the learning transfer itself. Someone's held, held accountable for the bums on seats, for the content, for this, for that, for the other. But no one sort of has that overview, that kind of and held accountable for the learning transfer itself happening, um, which is why things like ROI and, and, and putting in place the right measures and all of that so difficult is there's no one there kind of calling those shots. And I think it's really important that you sit down with the stakeholders and go through those 12 levers. And, and it's not that the 12 levers are, are the, the only way to do it. It's just it's a nice framework to, to have that discussion around. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's so useful about them. So one of the things we now do with our clients when we are you know, talking to them about some training, we actually show them the levers. We give it to them as a checklist. And when yeah. we and we say, you know, this is your responsibility here. You know, we're, we're coming in yeah. to support you. Uh, 
And then at the end, when we're discussing, you know, the evaluation of, and I don't mean the evaluation straight after an event, I mean, you know, has something happened in the workplace? Uh, we come back to that um, checklist and we say, so, you know, what what happened here? Did you do this? Did you do that? What what did you do there? Um, and for any of our listeners um, who also are interested in Ina, we already have a, a podcast from Ina who, where she does explain the 12 levers. So there's another opportunity to find out more about her really, really valuable work. Yeah. Yeah, we do something very similar with, with our clients as well. We use that as a checklist, as a way of just talking them through you know, what they need to do to get value out of the money they're spending on whatever program that they're, they're doing. And I think they're often very grateful because they hadn't necessarily have that pointed out to them before. It's not been kind of made mm. clear to them what their role is before. And they're often very pleased that actually we've thought about it further than just the here's here's the knowledge, here's the content. Well, it's some here's huge value you can add. And, and, and also what you're doing is you're pointing out that content won't change behaviour. Never yeah. has, never will. Just get no. over it, you know. No. <laughs> what, the only way you will change behaviour is a sequence of activity spread over time and they need to be done. And, and part of that is that is one of the 12 levers is that that journey, that plan, uh, yeah. that roadmap. Yeah. And, and I mean, I call that a learning workflow. It's a term I coined years ago and is in my learning transfer book. And the idea there is that if you need a sequence of activity spread over time to change behavior, what I do is that sequence of activity spread over time with a defined end result by definition is a workflow. So let's just call it a learning workflow to differentiate it from other types workflows. of workflows. Yeah. Um, and those activities are going to be made up of reflection, I don't know, experimentation, practice. You know, it may well be some consumption of some content that's delivered in some way. But ultimately, if you want people to do something different and to do different things, they need to focus on doing, yes, they not have on to get content to, consumption. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to get that across to the customer organization or the client organization um, to say, there's some things that you have to do to enable this, to, yeah. to cross that knowing doing gap, if you want. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. So, yeah, you yeah. can't expect that person to cross that gap on their own. They need support, a help, bridge. Yeah. You know, luggage yeah. to take with them so yeah. so so that question how do i deliver this list of behaviors that you've agreed with the c-suite as being the list of behaviors they want to see that will help them execute their organizational strategy how do i deliver this list of behaviors will lead you into developing a a, a workflow of activities that will get people from where they are behaviorally to where you want them to be behaviorally yeah. so it's a bit like a sat nav you've got your start point which is your current set of behaviors which has been deemed inadequate to deliver on the strategy. You've got your endpoint, which is the desired set of behaviours out the other end. And then you've got to say, in order for those behaviours to become real, what sort of skills need to be there to underpin those behaviours and, and support them? And then what knowledge might we need in order to practise those skills at a level that's sufficient to deliver on the behaviours? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how you can start building your programme up is bringing those skills up to that threshold level um, and how might you need to do that. But you'll need to do that over time. It's not going to – you can't do it as an event. It just won't ever work that way, no. which means you have to get the manager involved. You have to get the the general, you know, the, and other things involved. Colleagues, all peers. sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, So this kind of start with the end in mind, the behaviours you want, and work backwards is common knowledge. You know, yeah. everybody says that's great advice, but seldom – L&D doesn't get put into practice. Yeah. 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 One of the things we find sort of seems to help people understand the 
why it's like that. It's just explaining a little bit about, you know, how neuroplasticity works, how that our brains, you know, they're yeah. wired in particular ways, our behaviors have developed. And if you want to change those behaviors, you've got to do an awful lot of work to rewire those neural pathways to lead to new behaviors. And those new behaviors, those old behaviors are probably always lurking there, ready to leap back out again. If, you know, if the context changes, people will almost always revert to an old behavior, particularly if they're under pressure, they're under stress. Yeah. It's really hard to, you know, cognitively yeah. implement. Well, the stress response behavior. is always to go back to the last set of behaviors yes. that kind of yeah. seemed to work, even if yeah. they didn't work that well. At least yeah. they felt comfortable and yeah. familiar. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. So there's a yeah. whole pile of other complex stuff in there. But yeah, 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 that yeah. seems to work for some some of our well, clients. Neuro, neuroscience like. is your bag. I'll stay out of that field. <laughs> I like to bring them together. So um, we've talked about talking to the C-suite. We've talked about making sure that, you know, stakeholders are involved. What other advice would you give to, to anybody who's, you know, kind of wanting to to beat this? Because this, it is a skills gap. It is this gap between knowing and doing. What other advice would you give people, Paul? Um, well, I think the first thing to ask is how do you know there's a skills gap? And that's an interesting question for most people. In other words, what are you know, you you say to the, the senior person again, you know, you say there's a skills gap or, the, you know, there's a worry there. The, well, how do you know? And and so what you're really trying to dig is what criteria are they using? What are they seeing, seeing, hearing or feeling that leads them to believe there's a skills gap? And then you can say, well, what would you see, hear or feel differently if the skills gap was not there? So, again, what you're trying to define is what's going on now and what's the gap between where that is and where you want to be? And how do you define that gap in terms of things that you can actually measure? And, and that's observable behaviors yeah. typically or, you know, KPIs on a spreadsheet that are first order effects of uh, that, that, that change in behavior. And then you've got to say, well, how do we get people to cross that skills gap? And it, you can think of that like a sat-nav. You've got your start point. You've got your end point behaviorally in terms of a behavioral definition. And then you can say, well, actually, what are all the step-by-step -step instructions that someone would need to go through to get from where they are now behaviorally to where we want them to be behaviorally? And then you've got to design those step-by-step -step instructions. And then clearly they have to be held accountable for following those instructions. So it's just like a sat-nav. You need your start point, your end point, you need a set of instructions, and you need to follow them. With those four things in place, you will get to your destination. But of course, if one of those things is not right, then you probably won't. And, and so that's how you can then set it up for learning is saying, here's our behavioral destination. Here's a set of instructions, which we believe is fit for purpose for getting there. If it isn't, we'll have to iterate and improve it as we get feedback. But also we have to hold the people who are making that journey accountable for those step-by-step -step activities along the way. In other words, if they've got to at some point stop and reflect on this and think about it, then they've got to do that. If they've got yeah. to at some point stop and practice these things, they've got to do that. Because if they don't follow those instructions, they, they won't, won't cross get the there. gap, they <laughs> won't get the new behaviours, and then the whole thing is anyone it's yeah. gone, you know. Yeah. So so it's really important you define that endpoint and then define the journey and 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 work that learning workflow. Again, it's that's what it's got to be. You won't get yeah. behaviour change without a learning workflow. And one of the conversations we quite often have with clients in terms of, you know, those step-by-step -step pieces that where they're practising, they're getting 
we call it feed forward on feedback, you know, they're understanding how well they've done on that, what, where they need to go next to yeah. kind of make that a better skill, improve their skill. And one of the questions we kind of often talk about with our clients is, you know, well, who's going to define those activities in the workplace? Because what you want them to be is things that actually people do in their daily flow of work. Yeah. Before they do that, they sometimes need, you know, a safe pace to practice when, you know, when you're designing train, uh, IT, you know, you often work on a safe environment before you release it into the, the wild. You know, so sometimes they need a safe space to practice that or something that's less threatening. You know, you don't want to do your first negotiation skills course and have to go and negotiate with a senior CEO at some other company you maybe want to negotiate with somebody a bit nearer to you. So I think it's really important that we bring in the learner, the, the people who are doing the job, possibly their managers or the people who are responsible for, you know, they know where they need to go. And I think also, you know, the training um, designers, the, the L&D people, because they also may know, they can usually help with what are the steps people need to take. You don't want to drop them into the deep end of the pool straight away. They need to start at the shallow end and practice some strokes first. So I think it's really important. That's where all that stakeholder um, understanding who the stakeholders are becomes really important again. It, it does add board. some overheads to the design and development of the program, but you are going to end up, if you do that, the 12 levers and, and a lot of the things we've talked about, you will get a program that works and you're better off running five programs that work than 20 programs that don't. That have no impact whatsoever because they, they no. are just literally throwing money up into the air, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I've really enjoyed this um, journey through learning transfer. Um, what I'd really like to know from you, Paul, is you've clearly done some amazing things in the past, but what's a new skill you might like to learn? Well, yeah, you, you sent me that by email. It's a really interesting question. And and um, it, a skill I've been looking at or, or uh, recently is, is or a new behavior is, is how to improve my diet. I mean, it's a, nice to feel like you're going to be healthy. Um, but that's uh, that behavior of eating well is underpinned by skills like shopping appropriately and cooking and things like that. Um, and the way that I personally tackled that was is I felt I needed more data, some more information on what effect what I was doing was having on me um, beyond the surface measure that most people use, which is like standing on the scales, although weight loss wasn't really what I was after. So for me, having that data and information um, and how that data was then applicable to me would help me develop the motivation that I needed to go and do what needed to be done. In other words, to make it relevant to me personally, rather than some generic advice from, you know, an article I'd read or a book I'd read. So, so what I actually did is I went out and got a, a real-time blood glucose monitor, which I just okay. um, put on my upper arm for a couple of weeks and it connected to my smartphone. So what I could see is a graph on my smartphone of what was happening to my blood glucose levels in real time. So if I ate a slice of bread at first thing in the morning, I could see my blood glucose spike as a result of that slice of bread, and I could watch it go up and then come down an hour or so later. Um, and then I read around, well, actually, for me, what does that spike in glucose mean in terms of circulatory you know, inflammation and so on? And I got to, well, actually, those spikes, if they are big and sustained, are not real good. They're actually pretty damned unhealthy. So that gave me a very strong immediate feedback cycle on what good looked like and what bad looked like. Um, it connected it to me personally, so it was highly relevant. And so then I could look at well, what things in my diet are giving those spikes on my glucose graph and what things are actually not giving me to, you'll always get a rise, but what you don't want is those high level spikes. 
And things like I suddenly discovered if I ate lots of sushi, I got a huge spike from the white rice, but I could go and have sashimi quite happily. Okay. Um, so I could, you know, have cheese with my bread and that would be fine. It would The cheese and the bread together would actually not be so bad. It's just the bread on its own. So there's all these things I started to learn. And but because of that immediate feedback on what good looked like, it really helped me very easily change my behaviors. And I think that's what's important is that how can you get people the information they need or the feedback they need so that what you're asking them to do is relevant and actually they immediately know what good looks like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's anyway. hugely. Yeah, totally agree. So well done on on practicing that new quite complex <laughs> skill. But my, but I, I mean, totally my diet agree. as a result has changed significantly. And quite frankly, there was no effort in doing so. And it's changed in a way that a lot of the advice I previously knew to do, but there was that knowing doing gap. But until I got that immediate feedback and and a very strong relevance to me personally, I didn't make the change. So I really like that, that we need to show people the data or people need to see the data that is relevant to them, that is personal to them, that shows them where they need to be, but also shows them how well they're moving along that journey. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. I love it. I mean, so much so that a few months later, I am now I've got another one of those monitors. I'm going to now wear it for another couple of weeks um, because it only lasts for two weeks, the ones I've got. And 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 I'll look at what my current diet now that it's changed and settled in. What's that doing to me? Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I, that sort of stuff fascinates me. So, yeah, there's there's learning a new skill. But but it became very personal and very immediate. And as I said, what was interesting is. I had a knowing doing gap before because I knew a lot of this stuff but didn't do it because I didn't have enough immediate motivational impact to make a change. And But now that I got that immediate feedback and data, the change actually was easy. It, it's yeah. been no effort at all, quite frankly, yeah. to go and yeah. shop differently and cook differently. That is a fantastic advice, I think, for um, L&D people. For anybody who's trying to change their diet or change anything in their lives, that's really useful to get some data to find the reason for you. But to be able to see that progress, I think that's hugely important. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much. It's, as always, been a huge pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. And um, I will make sure that the the, 13 barriers, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, just just put up the the website where they can go and download it from whatever is all. That's yeah. great. And if anybody wants to ask any other questions, just grab me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find, and uh, be delighted to to help with any uh, you know discuss anything in that area. So, great. Thank you very much, Paul, and talk to you again soon. All right, brilliant. Thanks so much. For you for listening to this episode of Mind the Skills Gap. If you liked it, hit subscribe. You can follow me, Stella Collins, on LinkedIn and find out more about how Stella Labs is tackling the skills gap at stellalabs.eu.